0: Well, Welcome everybody to another at-home edition of our Banner lectures Series. I'm Adam Scher, Vice President for Collections and Exhibitions at the VMHC. Uh, first off, as always, a big thank you to our members and our supporters who help make these programs possible. Your support is very much appreciated. Uh, another reminder, uh, in case you don't know we we are open uh, we have new protocols in place to make your museum experience uh as safe and as possible um you do need to purchase tickets in advance online which you can do through our website uh our next banner lecture will be on september 16th at noon That program will be called Restoring America's Most Significant Gardens, Stratford Hall, Poplar Forest, and the Garden Club of Virginia. As you all probably know, uh, this year 2020 is the centennial of the Garden Club of Virginia. And we have an exhibition here that uh, you absolutely must see. Uh, It's a wonderful show. uh, And we will have for this program, representatives from Stratford Hall, Poplar Forest, and the Garden Club to talk about uh, projects at at those sites. Uh, Today's topic I think is especially relevant for us. Um, The word relevance is a big buzzword in the the museum profession now. Uh, Our our work as, as curators and interpreters to connect present to past is something that we're very much interested in. And um, this particular talk, I think, uh, really hits the mark in that respect. uh, Because as we all know, uh, over the last few months, there's been a lot happening, not just in Richmond, but around the country uh, involving Confederate symbols. And uh, our today's speaker uh, is going to address that. And I hope we'll have a a lively conversation uh, after, after her talk. Our speaker today is Dr. Nicole Marantonio. She is an associate professor of rhetoric and communication studies and American studies at the University of Richmond. Prior to joining the faculty at UR, she was a postdoctoral teaching associate in the communication studies department at Northeastern University. Dr. Marantonio's research explores narrative and material traces of memory. And her lecture for today is based on her 2019 book, Confederate Exceptionalism, Civil War Myth and Memory in the 21st Century. Please welcome Dr. Nicole Barantonio.
1: Thank you, Adam. Okay, sorry, I'm just listening to okay. Just getting the screen up. All right. Again, thank you, Adam. And thank you to the Virginia Museum of History and Culture for inviting me to share my work and coordinating this talk under these most unusual circumstances. I am honored to be included among the distinguished group of previous Banner lecture speakers. And so thank you to, to those who have joined today. The invitation to speak is especially meaningful to me given the Virginia Museum of History and Culture's place within my book. It was a site of research for this project, home to Tessa Pullen's Sculpture to the Horses and Mules of the Civil War, now moved to the side of the building. This is admittedly a photo I took a while back. And was also the venue of the first public forum of Mayor Stoney's appointed Monument Avenue Commission in August of 2017 which was convened just days before white supremacists descended upon nearby Charlottesville, killing counter-protester Heather Heyer and wounding several others. You can see a prominent photo from those events. This is an important moment, I think, to be speaking at the VMHC today a place that has been radically reimagined and envisioned, I think, in really important ways to cultivate the kinds of discussions surrounding race and racism, past and present, that prompted my book. And I look forward to engaging these conversations with you today. But also, I want to say that I admittedly feel the weight of this current moment to be speaking about what I call in my book Confederate exceptionalism. Like so many in Richmond, I bore witness to the removal of Confederate monuments lining historic Monument Avenue over the past few months and observed protesters' revisioning of the Lee statue on Monument Avenue and its surrounding property, now dubbed Marcus David Peters Circle, after a Black man who had been killed in 2016 by Richmond police. Today, the Lee statue, I think, is a magnificent canvas calling for public acknowledgement and recognition that black and brown lives matter. And so rather than an uncritical celebration of Confederate history, it is now a site of pilgrimage for those who advocate for racial justice and are seeking a more equitable future. So it's, not, it's impossible not to see this moment as a formative juncture, one of historical reclamation led importantly by grassroots activists who have transformed formerly white-dominated spaces, and a narrative that's for far too long been dominant not only throughout the South, but the United States. That narrative, of course, is what has come to be called the Lost Cause, a myth that has been updated to inform what I call in my book, the myth of Confederate exceptionalism. Now, while I began the book in earnest about six years ago, it was inspired most immediately by my move to Richmond in 2010 to begin a job at the University of Richmond. When I arrived here in the summer of 2010, I experienced a bit of a culture shock, particularly after two previous years spent in Boston and seven years in Philadelphia before that. And when I arrived, I noticed quickly across the street from my apartment in Richmond's historic fan district in front of the Virginia Museum of Fine Arts, just a couple of doors down from the VMHC, a small gathering of men and women waving Confederate battle flags, carrying signs proclaiming heritage, not hate. They were mostly, though not exclusively white, older and standing out front. The group known as the Virginia flaggers became somewhat, something of a permanent <laughs> fixture of the landscape I observed certainly never normalized, but ever-present. They appeared, like clockwork, on Thursday and Saturday afternoons to protest the VMFA's 2010 decision to remove the Confederate battle flag from outside Pella Memorial Chapel, which is the Confederate Chapel on museum grounds. At the turn of the 20th century, the grounds have been home to the Lee Camp No. 1, a soldiers' camp for Confederate veterans, and remained as such um, until the last veteran died in 1941, at which point the grounds became property of the state. One Saturday morning, however, in 2014, while I was walking my dog, I broke my pattern of avoidance with the Virginia flaggers and struck up a conversation with a, wh- a white gentleman who was wearing jeans and a Confederate battle flag printed on his shirt. How, I wondered, could he literally wear this symbol, the Confederate battle pla- flag? with pride and claim it not to be a symbol of racism. The man handed me a flyer um, and proceeded to tell me about the battle flag that he was carrying. I introduced myself as a professor of rhetoric and communication studies at the University of Richmond who studies memory cultures. I gave the flagger in question my information, told him he could find me on Facebook and proceeded toward my house. Days later, however, I was informed that a photograph had been posted to the Virginia Flaggers Facebook page of me. Here's that photo. As you can see, it was captioned, Changing Hearts and Minds. The photograph had 55 likes when this was screenshotted, as well as two comments. The first was History 101 taught by Barry Eisenhower. The second was, She looks like an Obamaite spoiling for a fight. What was interesting to me about this photograph, besides the fact that I didn't consent to have it taken, was that what had seemed to me like an innocent set of questions was quickly interpreted, at least by members of the Virginia flaggers, as something of a hostile attack. And so with the click of the camera and subsequent posts to Facebook, I had been implicated in a moment of confederate conversion without my consent. And in so doing, I became part of a story, which I believe to be something of a cliche, part of the battle between knowledge and ignorance, conservatism and liberalism, South and North. And so this really became the immediate prompt for this project, prompting me to pursue the Virginia flaggers further and to really explore the processes by which and circumstances under which the stories they told of the Confederacy take shape. So over the next several years, I took a series of trips, followed individuals and groups throughout the state of Virginia who advocate on behalf of Confederate memory and to take a closer look at the meaning and circulation of Confederate symbols. And so this meant moving to a number of museums throughout the state of Virginia, grappling with the history of the Civil War, It led me to ceremonies at cemeteries, celebrating Confederate veterans, Twitter accounts and Facebook pages, as well as to gift shops, both physical and virtual, to see what objects commemorating the Confederacy could be purchased. So you can see from teddy bears to Christmas ornaments to comics to postcards and food, of course. And so this book is really my effort to make sense of what I observed. So to return to my initial question, how could the Virginia flaggers and other neo-Confederates embrace symbols of racism while claiming, if not to be anti-racists, then at least not racist themselves? The answer, I argue in the book is what I am calling the myth of Confederate exceptionalism that nostalgically remembers the South. And I use the South in quotes to emphasize that this is a construct itself by embracing and revising the Confederacy's racial history. More specifically, I am arguing that this myth fuses two of the most dominant ideologies in American public culture, the lost cause on the one hand and American exceptionalism. So, Rather than invoking the lost causes, faithful slave narrative um, as evidence of the benign nature of the institution of slavery, or American exceptionalism's notion of the melting pot as evidence of multicultural assimilation, the myth of Confederate exceptionalism appropriates these ideologies in the 21st century in ways that seek to normalize and I argue celebrate the Confederacy as the purest form of Americanism. Now, with the time I have remaining, I'd like to explain this further um, with a proximate example, especially to those of us in Richmond, the aforementioned Monument Avenue, which has certainly garnered a lot of attention of late. I want to examine its recent history as a site of protest, resistance, and a doubling down of this concept of American, uh, Confederate exceptionalism, rather. Monument Avenue is, after all, referred to as Richmond's Champs Elysees, and was dubbed by Southern Living Magazine as quote, one of the most beautiful thoroughfares in America. Richmond Region Tourism notes that the site was ranked among the top 20 things to do in Richmond and is reviewed more than 800 times on TripAdvisor, boasted as a favored living area for Richmonders. Though, of course, I want to clarify that by Richmonders, the modifier white is understood. While Richmond's monuments commemorating Confederate General Stonewall Jackson and Jeb Stuart, as well as Confederate President Jefferson Davis and Commodore Matthew Fontaine-Pic were in early July removed, the statue to Robert E. Lee, as you saw in an early image, still stands on Virginia state property, embroiled in legal dispute, its future uncertain. Now, amid the turn of the century mansions that developed around it, French sculptor Jean-Antonin Mercier's Lee is the product of lost cause ideology, testament to a desire articulated at the time of its creation and dedication in 1890 to display the general as a man of courage and dignity, valorizing the Confederacy with an imposing equestrian statue. And here is an image from the statue's dedication. The judge granting an injunction barring the statue's removal today, now, at least until October, has posited the need to, quote, protect the monument. And earlier this summer, we observed residents of Monument Avenue calling for the statue to remain as well. This language of protection and the need to restore Monument Avenue to its pre-protest state evokes a series of images and discourses surrounding the residential thoroughfare, which I argue seek to cement Monument Avenue as a historic habitat diorama suspended in time, making it an anchor point of Confederate exceptionalism. So I'd like to read this space, read Monument Avenue, and particularly the area around Lee as, as I mentioned, a habitat diorama. Now, like me, you may have an association with dioramas. I remember having to construct one as part of a second grade social studies assignment using plastic figurines, fake trees, Um, and an old shoebox. Now, I remember carefully gluing each of those pieces to that shoebox to ensure that nothing moved. Now, certainly that was a functional approach given that that shoebox needed to make its way on the bus to school, but it's also fundamental to the form of diorama. Dioramas are static. They're not supposed to move. Rising to prominence in the early 20th century, the diorama is infrequently seen today save for in a natural history museum. And you might even now be thinking about the popular movie, Night at the Museum. Yet yeah, more than a series of isolated objects described and interpreted with label text, the diorama with its flora, fauna, and sometimes taxidermied animals told the story. And Monument Avenue, I want to argue, tells a story as well, a three-dimensional setting for Confederate exceptionalism. Monument Avenue's shift in recent months from a mere site of lost Cause celebration to a site of legal tensions between past and present, nostalgia and resistance, though has been certainly not a linear transformation and has taken place over decades. And that's something that I want to emphasize. Monument Avenue is where approximately 1,400 sons of Confederate veterans and a few women marked the hundredth anniversary in August 1996 with a parade including Confederate battle flags carried by descendants of Civil War soldiers. The SCV, the Richmond Times-Dispatch noted, asked the roughly 12 white supremacists covered in swastika tattoos and t-shirts with white power slogans and Confederate flags to leave. Otherwise, the the Richmond Times-Dispatch cast the carnival-like atmosphere as ultimately harmless. In February of 2012, the Daily Press reported that several hundred Civil War reenactors and others marched down Monument Avenue for a rally organized by the Sons of Confederate veterans. Participants stopped, as you can see at the Robert E. Lee Monument, where a small plane flew overhead carrying a banner, Richmond, embrace your Confederate history. Yet, as a landmark, Monument Avenue continues to be touted amongst the city's walking tours. Um, It had been advertised as a place to take holiday walking tours at Christmas time. It is also a site of popular races such as the Monument Avenue 10K, bringing in tens of thousands of people each year to run past the Confederate monuments, which were dedicated between 1890 and 1929. Tourists were encouraged encouraged to visit Monument Avenue at the Civil War Centennial, boasting Quote, history lives in Virginia, where echoes of Civil War bugles haunt the wind on every hand. Simply, Monument Avenue has been touted as one story noted as recently as 2015, Richmond's crown jewel. While Richmonders still turn out on Monument Avenue for citywide celebrations, one might think about the Easter on Parade as an exemplar featuring petting zoos, funnel cakes, and a contest of pets dressed in Easter bonnets. Though admittedly, this didn't occur this year, much like the Monument Avenue 10K and other Monument Avenue related experiences due to COVID. The space's meaning has become a a site of resistance and debate. So for instance, when in 2015, the Road World Bicycle Championship was held in Richmond, which took bikers down Monument Avenue. Again, you can see from this image, protesters and and advocates claimed that this was in fact a reminder of the ways in which Monument Avenue was a shrine to the Confederacy. For instance, the Defenders for Freedom, Justice and Equality announced that they would hold a press conference at the Jefferson Davis Monument the turnaround point for race participants, dubbing this a horrific embarrassment. The Virginia flaggers, of course, responded with a public statement that not only called the defenders an extremist group, but affirmed the race course as evidence of a broader interest in Confederate heritage. Visitors in the flaggers estimation sought would seek out Monument Avenue to quote, view and admire the stately monuments and memorials to our Confederate heroes. Art drawing inspiration from Monument Avenue, such as John Barber's Morning Stroll, continued to romanticize the past, particularly the Jim Crow South that led to the monument's construction. Here, Barber's scene is fairly timeless. We see a woman pushing a baby stroller. We can't really make out any cars to help date the photo, uh, the painting rather, but we do see the turn of the 20th century homes. It stands certainly in stark contrast to the graffiti and other forms of public resistance to Confederate statues and symbols that emerged frequently and with greater frequency around the same time. For instance, just months later, in February of 1998, the base of the Lee monument had been spray painted, proclaiming the statue a monument to racism. In 2000, graffiti was again written on the Lee statue, claiming kill white devil. This act coincided with the burning of the Robert E. Lee mural, which hung on the James River Canal as part of the Riverfront Redevelopment Project on Lee Jackson King Day, a state holiday that honored Lee Jackson and assassinated civil rights leader Martin Luther King. That was as recently as January 2020, voted to be eliminated. The burning of the mural at the flood wall was an act that the Virginia commander of the Sons of Confederate veterans argued should be treated as a hate crime against Southerners. Now this sense of violation by conservative neo-confederate heritage groups has only increased over time. When in twenty. Uh, 2003, Robert Klein commissioned a life-size bronze sculpture of Abraham Lincoln with his son, Tad, to be installed at the Visitor Center for the American Civil War, or for Tredegar Ironworks, rather. Near what is today the American Civil War Museum, Neo-Confederate heritage sympathizers likened the move to, quote, installing a Bin Laden statue at the World Trade Center site or erecting a Hitler figure in Jerusalem. Now, This sort of resistance, of course, is not coincidental and coincided, in fact, with some demographic changes in the city. 50 years earlier, the population of Richmond was slightly more than 30% Black. At the time of the Sons of Confederate Veterans protest, that number had increased to 57%. At that time, a proposal had emerged to rename the Boulevard, which intersects Monument Avenue, at the statue of Stonewall Jackson after Arthur Ashe. The proposal to rename the boulevard after Ashe, however, was defeated then. Um, Certainly we know now that this change occurred in 2019 in June um, with the dedication outside the the Virginia Museum of History and Culture. Again, an important time um, to be in the city. But then, the Virginia Division of the Sons of Confederate Veterans had offered the American Civil War Center a $100,000 statue of Confederate President Jefferson Davis for the same site in 2008. Given that Monument Avenue was home to Edward Valentine's statue commemorating Davis, the SCV donation was seen as redundant at best. The matter was eventually dropped after Christy Coleman, who was then the museum's president, told the SCV that the museum could not guarantee how the statue, if it were to be loaned, would be used. A little more than a year later, the Robert E. Lee monument was vandalized again. This time the phrase, happy birthday MLK was spray painted across the base. The phrase death to Nazis was also written. This vandalism coincided with Richmond's Lee Jackson Day. Now, with each instance of graffiti, the city moved fairly quickly to clean the statues in question, returning them to their previous state. On the eve of the sesquicentennial of the Civil War, a collaborative effort was formed among cultural, historical, and community organizations from the region dedicated to ensuring that the anniversary recognized the histories of all those affected by the war, called the quote, future of Richmond's past. This vision, shared one of Richmond that would be a quote, model for the rest of the state and nation and would not make the same mistakes of the centennial, including a series of community conversations, guided walks of the trail of enslaved people, and a number of concluding events. Such displays and performances sought to counter the static nature of the museum diorama, projecting audio and video into the landscape. For instance, using stunning visual projections of the evacuation fire. Of 1865. But months later, the meaning of the Civil War would once again be thrust into the public arena when photographs of Charleston's church massacre's perpetrator embracing a Confederate battle flag began to circulate in June of 2015. Little more than a week following the Charleston shooting, the words Black Lives Matter were sprayed in black letters along the base of the monument to Confederate President Jefferson Davis. While condemning the defacement of public property, Richmond Times Dispatch columnist Michael Paul Williams wrote that the statues on Monument Avenue, quote, send the unequivocal message that our lives don't matter, not then and not now. The words no hero were sprayed on the, along the base of the monument to Confederate General Robert E. Lee. And days later, the Confederate soldiers and sailors monument in Lippey Hill Park was defaced. Governor Taylor McAuliffe announced an attempt to prohibit Confederate flag logos from vanity license plates throughout the state soon thereafter. Little more than a year later, following the election of Donald Trump to the US presidency in November, 2016, the words your vote was a hate crime were sprayed on the monuments to Jefferson Davis and Matthew Maury. In the wake of the deadly violence in Charlottesville in August, 2017, the base of the monument to Jeb Stuart was tarred can see here. Two months later, in October 2017, the word racist was sprayed on the Davis monument, followed the next day by racist band KKK again on the Davis monument. Almost a year later, in August 2018, several buckets of red paint were splattered along the base of the Robert E. Lee monument, along with the letters BLM for Black Lives Matter. Now, again, I return to the speed with which the city had, to that point, acted to remove graffiti, communicating, I argue, an investment in the continued whiteness of the space, thwarting attempts at disruption, certainly the the disruption intended by protesters. A Richmond Times Dispatch story reported more than $16,000 in city funds being spent on cleaning graffiti. In committing resources to the maintenance of the monument's pristine appearance, the city made a responsive statement At the time, restoring memory of the lost cause to its unvarnished material form and upholding, implicitly, a commitment to white supremacy, maintaining that historic diorama. Now the diorama, as I've mentioned, was distinctive for its ability to create affective connections with viewers. It could as some have argued, quote, evokes sympathy for animals, the efficient conservation and exploitation of natural resources, successful adaptation to changing environments and the physical processes by which life was organized and advanced. Well, at least that was the hope. This affective connection is one of the many aspirations that drive the continued commitment to monument avenues, quote, preservation. As museum curators and scientists were debating the merits and aesthetics of the diorama as visual display at the turn of the 20th century, Richmond was in the process of constructing Monument Avenue. From its very start, Monument Avenue was developed to pay homage to the past, Richmond's Confederate past in particular, so as to ensure the longevity of Confederate memory. Though, it's important to remember that this fashionable block was not always so fashionable. Yet never a site of commerce, Monument Avenue has, always since its development, been a residential thoroughfare, lending easily to its sense of timelessness as by Barber's morning stroll that we saw in an earlier slide. Prior to the first monument's dedication in 1890, but with the Lee Monument, the tract of land was formerly known as Mr. Jack Carter's Vineyard had been part of a plantation. The property, adjacent to the vast estate of the late William Allen, who owned more than 700 enslaved people, was advertised as, quote, no speculative scheme, but sale positive. In May of 1873, the Richmond dispatch announced, quote, the sale of the season, which included six acres of lots of Monroe Park. Part of the land's appeal certainly rested with the whiteness of the space and the intended inherently exclusionary nature An advertisement published in April 17 of 2013 in the Restroom Dispatch specifies, as you can see under the area that says restrictions, that no land within Monument Avenue Park would be sold to persons of African descent. So while certainly the back alleys of the Grand Mansions being built along Monument Avenue were designed for the Black workers hired to maintain these stately homes, their presence was to be rendered invisible. The surrounding area would eventually be cast as, quote, among the most desirable lots in this delightful section and present opportunities for securing home choice sites or a handsome speculation in the near future. In June of 1898, the land was advertised as, quote, what must soon become the most fashionable and attractive section of the city will doubtless command a much higher price than is now expected of it. Investors were advised to put their money in Monument Avenue the land they were assured would be worth the investment. They were right. So with each dedication of the success of Confederate monument, Monument Avenue reiterated Richmond's commitment to the lost cause. The first unveiling again of Mercier's Lee brought more than a hundred thousand onlookers to the area for an event that garnered much discussion and anticipation in the months leading up to it. Days before the Lee Monuments unveiling, The Richmond Dispatch announced to readers that it would be offering, quote, souvenir issues coinciding with the public event. Such editions the newspaper promised would be handsomely illustrated, intended to be collectibles. This pomp and circumstance only amplified the sense of the unveiling significance. Certainly since the dedication of Confederate monuments, there have been efforts, particularly in the post-civil rights 1960s, to add further works of art to Monument Avenue, namely to include Mackie Walker, to whom a statue was unveiled in Jackson Ward in July of 2017, and in admittedly a more bizarre turn, Confederate Captain Sally Tompkins, proposed by surrealist artist Salvador Dali. And this was an image of the proposal. But certainly, as we know, such efforts failed. Despite Dali's desire to commemorate a woman who is in fact associated with the Confederacy. His design was certainly too avant-garde for the otherwise architecturally conservative neighborhood. Tompkins is however, among the 12 women from 400 years of Virginia history represented in bronze as part of the Virginia Women's Monument on Capitol Square. Though certainly this was not a decision that itself was without controversy. The one successful attempt to change Monument Avenue of course, came in 1996 with the dedication of Paul di Pasquale's statue commemorating Arthur Ashe. With the dedication of the Ashe statue, certainly the process of um, exercising in the words of Michael Paul Williams, some of the ghosts of our past had taken place. Though so even this process in terms of deciding where the statue would be placed was contested. Resistance to the dedication of the Ash Monument made the statue a powerful backdrop for former Ku Klux Klan leader, David Duke, who declared in 1999 that whites must stand up, quote, against an assault on our European American heritage. Monument Avenue's status to relive the past, however, through diorama, can be seen most visibly in picture postcards, popularly circulating, which date to the early years of the 20th century. Now, it might seem odd to focus on postcards um, due to their status as fairly ephemeral objects, but I want to argue here, following geographers Gordon Waite and Leslie Head, that they serve as the quote, time machine of the tourism industry. They provide tourists, they write, with the illusion of traveling back to a time in a disjunctive moment, when history is just about to begin through discovery, conquest, and civilization. So the picture postcard is a powerful emblem of the tourist experience. You may be a postcard collector yourself, purchasing them to commemorate an experience as well as characteristics, concepts, values, and ideas. Again, postcards certainly are ephemeral objects, often cheap and and thrown out. Though they also, as weight and head note, are about myths, more than about substance. They're endowed with symbolic meanings. Postcard imagery is one mechanism by which tourism places are reinvented in the image of particular tourism motivations and desires. And so and monument avenue, I'd argue, is one such place. The rationale that purchasers have for buying them, whether for souvenir or for testimony, are unknown. However, for souvenir purposes, the postcard functions to satisfy a, a nostalgic demand, a longing to connect with the past. In this way, the postcard can serve as a kind of relic. Now, all the postcards that I look at and examine are tethered to photographs, which makes them particularly significant when we think about space and time. So when hundreds of children gathered at the Lee monument during the unveiling of the Stuart monument in 1907, forming a human Confederate battle flag, little did they know that the black and white image would be suffused with bright colors of the Confederacy and circulated in postcard form, making the Confederacy an entity that could be consumed as well as a destination. Part of the historic Beautiful and Richmond series Several of the postcards identifying the monument, lining Monument Avenue, characterize the area as quote, the heart of the handsome residential section of Richmond. Postcards share a visual symmetry. Um, so we can see in each, whether in this case, the one to Stewart um, on the bottom left and to Stonewall Jackson on the top right. Um, we see the statue occupying the center of the frame. Well, there are some exceptions and again, the Stuart is one um, where it's slightly left of center. What we do see is the Lee monument actually in the distance. Often highlighted with warm colors, the postcards foreground the setting's timelessness. The front of each postcard includes a sense of place. So we see just the listing of the monuments. So Jackson monument, um, Stuart's monument. No time period is annotated. And that no caption is provided suggests that the postcard is intended to speak for itself. Little other additional information is offered. In a few cases, th- is even the general's full name offered. Rather, the icons of the Confederacy are identified by last name only, as if to assume a collective familiarity with the men being commemorated. Many postcards of the statue of General Robert E. Lee, dated between 1900 and the 1930s, share a common point of perspective. Where persons are visible in the postcard's imagery, the people are visible only as a reference point, again to give a sense of the scale of the monument, less to date it specifically. While the front of each of these postcards lacks a historical time period, the backs of the postcards often include a date or more. However, these dates offer little about the postcard So in the case of, say, the Jackson postcard that we saw, the general's birth date and death date, as well as the dedication of the monument, are listed. For Lee, the date of the monument's unveiling, 1890, is provided, an event that the postcard notes was for the, quote, the greatest reunion of Confederate veterans ever held. Again, there's little sense of the site itself, but rather the tradition surrounding it. With their references to the handsomeness of of the monument to the Confederate chieftain, Jackson, and the idol of the South, Lee, the postcards depict Monument Avenue of relative peace. The quiet boulevard is settled, but not overbuilt. It's residential and not commercial, with few passers-by. While there's undoubtedly a sense of the postcard's historicity, at least to the contemporary consumer, there's also something, I argue, that's atemporal about these postcards. They serve as, as symbols and testament to a certain nostalgia, privileging the timeless beauty of the landscape, home to spectacular statues. The monument avenue featured in each of these postcards is static, virtually unchanging from the point of dedication through the time the postcard was created. Each postcard emphasizes the, quote, artistic beauty of the monuments, a phrase used to describe Edward Ballantyne's Jefferson Davis monument. The most laden with imagery and text, standing in sharp contrast to the largely equestrian monuments that define the thoroughfare, the Jefferson Davis Monument is ex- in fact explained on the back with text. And again, that's very unusual, probably because the Jefferson Davis Monument is the least overtly, or was the least overtly legible monument on Monument Avenue. What Richmond sought with these postcards was to champion the city's beauty. In celebrating quote, Southern heroes. De-emphasizing the Confederacy, the postcard signaled how the monuments were sold as part of a site anchored to a particular identity, quote, Southern, suspended in time and divorced from the history of Jim Crow. It was not an anomaly. Largely devoid of people, these early 20th century picture postcards offered a comfortable remove from the lived experiences of Richmonders and the structure shaping them. Now, if we jump ahead, several community members seeking to preserve the statues in situ on Monument Avenue had articulated just this very stance at the, the first public forum of the Monument Avenue Commission in August of 2017. Again, held at the VMHC. One speaker noted, quote, if you tear down these statues, you're not discussing, you're suppressing a side, ending conversation. I'm not sure if these statues need context. Another speaker noted, the Lee Monuments nice and long, and nowhere does it say anywhere slavery, racism, or white supremacy. For these individuals, the setting spoke for itself. No explanation was needed. The diorama as an apolitical, anti-racial background, would be the ideal setting for performances on the stage of Monument Avenue. Now we now know that the diorama no longer stands entirely intact. It's been disrupted the monuments, save for Lee, no longer stand. Their plinths are covered in colorful graffiti calling for justice. Yet, as Lee continues to stand, we're reminded of the power of the myth of Confederate exceptionalism, which calls, yet again, for the protection of the Confederacy, reinventing its racial history, and seeking to preserve a past that never existed.
0: Thank you. We have uh, a few minutes for questions. I hope that we can engage in a conversation about this. Timely subject Uh, if you're on YouTube or Facebook uh, and would like to ask a question and participate. Please log in and submit your your comments Uh, while while we're waiting for that um, before we went on the air Nicole was telling me about what her forthcoming projects are, uh, which are rather rather fascinating. So uh, we have a couple of, uh, of minutes. Uh, fill us in on on what's next for you.
1: Certainly. So I'm working on projects. Um, one emerges immediately from this book, um, which focuses this new project on plantation weddings in the South and really the politics and aesthetics of forgetting. So I'm very much interested in how the past, um, particularly as it's constructed on a plantation, is packaged and sold, particularly for a, a moment like a wedding, right? A moment of celebration, and how it is that hit the history of the plantation, the history of that site is is squared, is engaged or not um, with, with, the, with the actual ritual that's being, that's unfolding. Um, in the site of the wedding. So I'm interested in how plantation weddings look um, as well as the stories, the histories um, with which they engage and and in some cases, in many cases don't. Um, And so how that process works. Um, So that's one of the projects that I'm working on. Um, The other is related to um, a larger project that I've been working on for some time that thinks about, imagery of police brutality um, and its iconicity. And so I asked the question in this project, why is it that certain photographs um, and other visual images that capture police abuse of authority, um, particularly um, abuses of authority that are enacted against Black and brown people, um, why is it that certain photographs are forgotten? Um, Why do some become quote-unquote iconic photographs that become immediately recognizable in public culture and others are, I would argue, strategically forgotten?
0: Well, those are fascinating topics and uh, I hope that they will take the form of uh, some books that you'll be able to come back and and talk to us about. And we're we're starting to get some some questions. Um, the, the first question from Allison Williams is, uh, when was Monument Avenue given its name? Did it ever have another name?
1: Oh, that's a great question. Um, so Monument Avenue was actually built around, um, so the monuments were, the community built was built around the monuments itself. Um, and so that's a, a good question in terms of, I don't know the exact date that Monument Avenue became kind of enshrined um, as such, in popular culture, um, but it was certainly a development um, that came about because of the monuments themselves. So it it didn't it didn't actually exist um, as anything as a residential thoroughfare without the monuments. They became the kind of anchor points for for the residents. Okay, uh,
0: a question about a more recent. Uh, event uh, for Monument Avenue uh, in 2019, the Valentine Museum conducted a competition uh, where they asked artists and architects to uh, provide their vision for how they would reimagine the avenue um, and provide some context to these monuments. Uh, any anything in your research uh, that uh, that let, sheds any light on uh, what the outcomes of, of that were?
1: Well, certainly oh, the, the Valentine's oh. General, Demotion, General Devotion exhibit was a profound opportunity to think about what a reimagining of the space could look like. And in fact, I brought my students there um, in the fall to begin to think about these questions. I mean, I think the designs that were proposed. Um, really offer a variety of different ways of thinking about how Monument Avenue can be repurposed or could be repurposed, um, ranging from if the statues had remained um, to what green space might look like. Um, Basically, it's a question of what as a community um, do we want that public space to be? How is it going to be accessed? Who can use it? I think, and thinking back to some of the designs, I was really struck by the designs that moved from everything from um, kind of circling the monuments in foliage, um, so planting trees around them so that they grow over the monuments, to to think about the symbolism of that, to submerging the monuments in water, um, to binding them in rope, um, to, I recall one that my students thought was uh, fairly interesting, uh, quite interesting, which was transforming them into a climbing wall. Um, So we saw a lot of different ways of thinking about how that space um, could be used um, and the symbolism of the different possibilities. So what it actually will turn out to be, um, I don't know, Um, but I think that we're in a moment where conversations will need to be had about Within communities across the city of Richmond, in terms of what this what this new space what what this reimagining could be, I mean, I think it's a moment of real possibility in the city.
0: Well, we're all curious to see how how that develops uh, in the coming coming months. Um, well, your your question about. Uh, Uh, Your forthcoming research is already sparking interest here. Uh, We're already getting questions about that Uh, So I wonder whether we might uh, might divert for a moment uh, to that Uh, uh, One of our our viewers is asking um, What the uh, the role of enslaved people were during these plantation weddings in the south so maybe you can give us a I don't know how much research you've been doing yet, but maybe you can give us a sneak peek into into what you've been working on uh, as far as that goes
1: no that's that's a great question though i will say that the work that i've been doing on the project has actually been focusing on weddings that are held on plantations in the present day Um, so i've been interested in how contemporary plantations um, or existing plantations um, really market themselves um, as well as how couples and how different vendors who participate in really the wedding industry engage with that history. So I've been looking actually at, um, I've conducted a series of interviews say with wedding photographers, um, about their experiences at various plantations throughout the South, um, to better understand again, the different players, negotiations of history.
0: So we you talked a bit about um, how the monuments appear now that there have been significant changes due to uh, recent activism um, and uh, removal of some of the monuments. Uh, how how and if that has been portrayed in any way um, in artwork and postcards and in other. Um, formats, visual formats. Uh, are are you doing any compilation of of that as part of your work?
1: Well, I'm certainly uh, following the visual imagery that's been in circulation. Um, but I think what's also really fascinating too to think about Monument Avenue currently is that as we think about it as a as a site of public art, it really has become a tremendous canvas. Um, And so seemingly almost every day we can go to Monument Avenue, whether it's to the Lee or to Marcus David Peters Circle or to the former sites of the Stonewall Jackson monument or the Jeb Stuart monument and see say new graffiti there um, that is responding to current events. Um, So I would say in response to your question, I haven't Kind of conducted a systematic study, but certainly am following um, as a, certainly a, as a both a resident of Richmond um, and someone who's deeply invested and interested in how these spaces are being used to communicate messages and to communicate with communities about the meaning and really the in, in the reclamation of these sites um, for for new for new ends for new messages
0: so do you think that the the current debate on confederate statues could be a, a proxy for debate on the existence uh, or non-existence of systemic racism uh, asks one of our viewers
1: absolutely i think um symbols are important um and certainly my work within rhetoric and communication studies is thinking about how do we evaluate, how do we understand what symbols mean? But certainly it's they, do, they are standing in for a larger conversation. And so in much the same way, we can't say that the removal of the monuments, um, the removal of Confederate monuments in Richmond or throughout the United States is going to resolve racism, um, but certainly it's a symbolic act that is engaging and making an important move um, that is necessary to make the sorts of changes that we need to see. But certainly, I, in response to that question, absolutely, the, the monuments are, are part of a much larger conversation, a much larger, deeper set of questions um, about the future of this nation, about race, and it's about racism. And how we, as we, as a community, um, engage with, with our past and present.
0: So one of our viewers uh, actually had a relative who helped to fundraise for some of the Confederate monuments, um, and the she she couches this as a, a form of activism at that time. Um, I'm wondering what your what your thoughts are
1: about that. Um, so, as uh, in at the turn of the 20th century, to fundraise for Confederate monuments. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I think that this is this kind of strikes at the question of of cultural memory um, and of of public memory, and what does it mean, and how how do we remember? Um, the question of activism, um, I think, is an interesting one. In that, I would I would want to ask more questions about how activism is being defined, um, and what it's what what the goals are um, specifically. Um, but I would certainly see it as part of um, we, we look at the history of the United Daughters of the Confederacy for raising funds for Confederate monuments, and I and certainly at the time I, they believed themselves to be doing. Um, important advocacy work on behalf of the Confederacy, um, but what that yielded, again, I argue, is is a a larger and contribution to white supremacy culture. Okay.
0: Well, this is this has been fascinating. Um, I know that our viewers are are watching and listening to all that's going on. Uh, that relate to this, uh, this topic, uh, it's, it's an engaging period. Uh, it's certainly an interesting period for uh, people who, uh, like you, who uh, interpret history uh, and record it. And um, for those who are interested in uh, ordering a copy of Nicole's book, you can do that through through our website. Uh, you can go to www.shopvirginiahistory.com. Dot .org slash Confederate Exceptionalism uh, and, and get a copy of the book. So, uh, again, Nicole, thank you so much uh, for joining us today. Uh, I hope all of you can join us on the 16th uh, for our next banner lecture on restoring America's most significant gardens Stratford Hall, Poplar Forest, and the Garden Club of Virginia. In the meantime, everyone take care and be safe.